everyone. Welcome to the Wrong Kind of Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Martin, and I am so glad that you are joining me today. We are starting a brand new study this week, a four-week study this time, digging in deep to the book of Ruth. If you've done past studies with me, you know that I like to look at the author's original intention. So who was he talking to, cultural normalcies of that time period, and what was going on in the world at that time, that kind of thing, and then see what the author was really saying to them then and how we can practically apply those lessons to our lives today. So if you haven't already, go ahead and hit that subscribe or follow button so that you don't miss any of our Ruth study episodes. The beginning of Ruth actually gives us a little bit of a background to the story. So we're just going to start at the beginning and jump in. Ruth chapter one, verse one says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Okay, so in the days when the judges ruled, it's pretty specifically talking about the book of Judges. What we know of Ruth is that it is set in the, um, in the end days of the book of Judges, which really just means that Israel did not have a clear cut leader at the time. There was no king in place, but instead God had raised up leaders from among the people to help them get through certain hardships. The Israelites had kind of gotten themselves in this cycle of sin. So they would turn away from God, embrace the world. God would allow the consequences of that to overwhelm the Israelites. They would then repent and beg God for mercy. He would then raise up a leader to help them successfully get back on track with him. Israel would live godly lives for a while, usually like as long as that leader was alive, and then they would become enticed by the world again. And round and round and round we go. This time frame is best characterized by a phrase that appeared a few times in the book of Judges that says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Doesn't really sound all that different from today, does it? During this particular moment of oppression on the Israelites, there was a famine, which is, you know, ironic, given that they were supposed to be living in this land of plenty, right? The land of milk and honey. And it's a clear indication that the nation of Israel, they just weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. In order to avoid the realities of this famine, a certain family decided to leave Judah for the country of Moab, which, you know, why is this significant? Well, in order to leave Judah, the family had to essentially backtrack everything they went through to get to the promised land in the first place. It was really a conscious decision to leave the promised land, to leave the land that God literally gave them, and to go back to the wilderness that they once knew and they struggled so hard to leave. And we're just starting this book, but already we can kind of see that this story, it's, it's not going to be an easy one, right? But God can use even our bad decisions for his good. So let's keep going and see how this one works out. We're properly introduced to this family in the next few verses, but don't get too attached to them because just a few short verses before tragedy strikes. Verses two through five, the man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So our first glimpse into life in the pagan land of Moab is that it really isn't any easier there than it would have been in Judah if they had just stayed. Elimelech dies pretty quickly, and the sons are left in the care of their mother. 
and within 10 years of living there, those boys married Moabite women, which was another act of disobedience to the Lord. He had always told the Israelite nation to not marry within the pagan nations around them. And it's not a racist issue like some like to say that it is. It's really all about keeping the people of God connected to him. As I've gotten older, I've kind of realized that all these things that God tells us not to do, he tells us not to do for our own good. Like it's really for us. It's not just to give us rules. They have a big meaning for us in our lives. So when he tells them not to marry from the pagan nations, he's really trying to protect his relationship with his people. I mean, it's it's no different now. You know, if you're a Christ follower, but you marry someone who is not, how easy is it for you to begin to live your life like the person who has no relationship with Christ? It makes complete sense to me that God would tell them to avoid this temptation in the first place. But they didn't. They married Orba and Ruth. And at the end of those 10 years, both boys had also died. So, you know, we're less than five verses in. And so far, we've seen the nation of Israel as a whole is disobedient and are dealing with the consequences in the form of famine. We've seen further disobedience from this particular family and that they left the promised land and returned to the wilderness, settled into a pagan nation. Dad died, both boys went on to marry pagan women, and now both boys have died. Welcome to the book of Ruth, right? We're left with three childless widows in a pagan land with no support system in place. These women would have had to live off the kindness and generosity of strangers, and I'm sure you can imagine, that's not, that's not an easy life to live. Sometimes God takes away everything that we might hold on to so that we have to turn to him, so that we're forced to rely on him. And that's where we are now for Naomi. Naomi had left Judah a wife and a mom of two, but now we see her deciding to return to Judah, a childless widow with two daughters-in-law to worry about as well. Verses six and seven, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. All right, let's stop there and look at this with honest eyes, okay? Naomi heard through the grapevine that Israel was being blessed again, and she decided that she wanted to be a part of that. I mean, that sounds like a pretty crude way of saying it, but it doesn't make it less so. so. In fact, I mean, really, that should tell us something today. We should be living our lives in such a way that people can see that the blessings of God are working in our lives, and they should want that. People should wonder about the peace, the real joy, the love that we have in our lives, and they should want that too. Honestly, you know, that's how I came to know Christ in the first place myself. I had gone somewhere with some friends when I was in high school, and I saw that they had something that I I did not, and I wanted it. And there was someone who was willing to tell me about Jesus and what he had done for them so that I could come to have a relationship with him too. Guys, the witness of just living our lives can be powerful. What is your life saying to those around you? Is it pulling people towards Christ? Are you pointing to him? That's what's happening here. The Israelites were in another moment of having a real relationship with God and were blessed because of it. And that was apparent to everyone, so much so that Naomi heard about it all the way in Moab and it was enough to entice her to move back. And you know, really kudos to Naomi. It took great courage on her part to go beyond wishing that she were a part of that blessing and actually taking the steps necessary to get back to Judah. A lot of people don't have that kind of courage. Before she left, though, Naomi tried to do the honorable thing for her daughters-in-law, sort of. She attempted to send them back to their childhood homes in hopes that they would be blessed to remarry someday. 
verses 8 and 9. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud. There's some questions about why she would do this, but really put yourself in the shoes of Orpah and Ruth. They were Moabite women with zero family ties in Judah, except Naomi who was coming in with them. All of their family was in Moab. It's not even just a different tribe. It's a full-on different nation. It honestly made sense for them, these pagan women, to stay in the pagan nation with their families in hopes of remarrying another man someday. In fact, Naomi even prayed this to be true for them, and she prayed that they'd be blessed and dealt with with mercy from the Lord. And it wasn't that she wanted to be done with them or that she thought that they were too burdensome to journey with her. She loved them. In fact, she loved them enough to let them go and try to have what she considered a blessed life. But the women had another thought. They loved her enough to give up all that they knew, their families, their culture, everything that they had ever known, and go back with her to her people. Well, at least one of them did. We'll get to that. Verses 10 through 13. And they said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Okay, so emphasis mine on that reading, of course. But let's take a look at this through the lens of the Israeli culture at the time. If a woman married into a family and then her husband died while she was still sonless, like, you know, without having a boy, it was customary for a brother of the deceased man to marry the widow. Naomi isn't really chastising the women for wanting to stand by her, but she is saying, you know, have you really thought this through? I have no way of giving you another son for you to have your own family. It's just not going to happen. You're not gaining any worldly achievement by staying with me. And I think the last statement here, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. I think that really shows us a bit into Naomi's heart. She has fully accepted that she and her family have been punished for being disobedient. She's been dealing with guilt over this for a long time, probably 10 years of guilt, if we're being honest. And that can really weigh on a person. But now she's taking some of those first steps back towards God and God has shown us time and time again, when we're willing to take the first few steps, he'll meet us. That doesn't mean we stop walking and we just wait for him, but we can trust that he's there, pleased that we're coming back to where we're supposed to be. And if Naomi's example is any indication, it's never too late to take those first steps. It doesn't matter how long we've been away from him. We can still turn to him. However, though, Naomi's words did have some effect. Verse 14 says, at this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah decides to stay in Moab at the advice and with the blessing of her dearly loved mother-in-law, but Ruth holds on. As an interesting little side note here, and this, you know, it cannot be in any way proven, so don't take this as gospel, but as the human mind tends to do when it wants to fill in the gaps of a story, there has been a, a legend, I guess you could say, about the outcome of Orpah, because we don't really know what happened to her. It's been passed down amongst some Jewish traditions that say that Orpah traveled four miles outside of Moab with Naomi and Ruth before turning back, and that her quote-unquote payment for not continuing on with Naomi is that she became the mother of Goliath and his brothers. 
Like I said, that is not at all proven to be true, just an interesting take on it that I thought I would share. A bit more reality-based is this notion, though. We can all feel feelings, but not everyone acts on those feelings. Both Ruth and Orpah love Naomi, but Ruth was the one who acted on that by continuing with her on her journey. Of course, we shouldn't let our feelings dictate our life. We all know that the heart is fickle, but sometimes those feelings are there to push us along. Orpah loved, but she didn't act on it. Ruth loved and acted on it, and she was blessed heartily for it. That doesn't mean that Naomi didn't try to convince her again, though. Verses 15 through 18, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So, you know, she tried three times to get her to go back. This is the moment when we see that Ruth has actually put her faith in God. We have no idea what Ruth was exposed to as far as the faith of Naomi and Ruth's husband before his death. We don't know if they were teaching Ruth and Orpah about God, or if this was just like sprung on them when Naomi decided to return to Judah. We have no idea. But this is the moment when Ruth pushed away from what she's always known in the Moabite gods in favor of the Lord. So already we're seeing the Lord's favor for Naomi's decision to return to Judah. There's already been blessing. Verses 19 through 21, kind of skip ahead. They don't really give us any real insight into the journey, but looking ahead at what kind of welcome they received upon their arrival. So it says, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. It's not accidental that Naomi proclaimed her name to be Mara. Naomi literally means pleasant, and she no longer felt like her life was pleasant. So instead, she chose a name to show the complete opposite of that, bitter. And Mara means bitter. It must have been very difficult for Naomi to not only make that trip, but to anticipate the kind of reception that she would receive. It wasn't necessarily like a happy homecoming for her. Thinking about this in a very kind of minimal mindset here, but how many of us dread going to our class reunions because we're afraid that we didn't live up to the expectations that everyone had for us after high school? Naomi was having to answer to people who likely assumed that she had left the famine-ridden area to go on to have a great life full of blessing, and here she's returned to share with them that that just wasn't the case. She had been through the ringer, so to speak, but she was honest about it. She just straight up told them, this is what my life has been like. She didn't try to sugarcoat it in any way. And the difference is that though Naomi had proclaimed that she had had a bitter life, she wasn't bitter towards God in any way. And I imagine that most of us would struggle with that. Have you ever met someone, known someone who has lost a loved one or has gone through some kind of a tragic experience in their life and in their heart, they've blamed God? That's not where Naomi was. She placed the blame where she felt the blame truly lied, and that was on herself. And she did what she needed to do to come back to God. We finish up this first chapter with verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, 
her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And that's the end of chapter one. I almost hesitate to talk about this here, but I think it's kind of important. So I'm just going to take a minute to address it. There's so much tragedy in our world today. And sometimes I get the, I hear the question, why does God allow that? There are a lot of answers to that question. And I think one of the hardest to answer is when the tragedy involves some kind of like a sickness or an accident, something like that. And in this instance, Naomi recognized that what her family was going through was the result of their sin. David and Bathsheba lost their first son as a result of their sin. God took all the firstborns of the Egyptians during the Passover due to Pharaoh's unwillingness to let God's people go. So yes, sometimes God brings death and hardship as consequences, but people also die without a specific incident to cause that death, right? Because we live in a fallen world, because we're dealing with the very long-lasting consequences of the sin that happened way back in the Garden of Eden, sometimes things happen that are just a part of our lives, just a part of our world. No matter the reason why a tragedy has happened, God can always use it to bring us closer to Him. When we cling to Him during those experiences, we're allowing Him to comfort us, to love us, to give us a peace that surpasses understanding. Sometimes people have the opposite reaction. They turn from Him, full of anger, hurt, bitterness. When those moments happen in your life, and because of the fallenness of the world that we live in, it will happen at some point. When it does, cling to Him. Hold on to Him with all that you have. Even if the tragedy has nothing to do with your own personal sin, you can still cling to him for comfort and peace. Naomi clung to God, and though this first chapter is full of tragedy, and I promised you all a love story when I said we were starting this, this is just the beginning. The good that comes in the rest of this book all starts here with Naomi's repentant heart. Again, it's a hard issue, right? Naomi's repentance brings blessing not only to her life, but also to the life of her daughter-in-law and in the life of all those who will flow through Ruth's line to bring the Messiah into our world so that we may be blessed by his love. Naomi's repentant heart has had a, a direct effect on the lineage of the Messiah who saved us. So Naomi's repentant heart has had a direct effect on each of us. Sin may have far-reaching consequences, but we'll see in this book of Ruth, so does blessing. I hope you're ready to see what God can do when we truly trust in his ways. I will talk with you all next week when we dive into chapter two. Bye.